Romans that really illustrates uh, by his life the overall theme of Romans, uh, especially in chapter 4. We kind of been coming through the book of Romans, building this up, uh, and have come to the point now where in chapter 4 we see that uh, the aspect and the great doctrine of getting God's righteousness. We saw in Romans chapter 1 how that the Gentiles, even though that God dealt with them by their conscience, the problem was that that conscience dealing with them in the Old Testament uh, was not going to work anymore once Christ came and died on the cross. We saw the nation of Israel, the Jews, and we saw that particular situation in chapter 2 where uh, even though they followed the law in the Old Testament, we saw that uh, once Christ came who did away with the law, that that, that was not the way to do it either. And then we saw in chapter 3 how that uh, in both cases, Jew and Gentile, there had to be a change because the great event of Christ coming down and dying on the cross that literally changed the course of the world. And, and in chapter uh, 4 now we begin to see that the only way a man today or a woman today can find Christ as their own personal Savior is uh, to get God's righteousness. And in Romans chapter 4 he shows us how we do that. And the whole book of Romans, basically, early in the early part anyhow, is built around the lives of two men. I don't know if you've seen that, the life of Abraham and the life of David. The life of Abraham and David represent the two aspects of us getting God's righteousness. The life of Abraham shows us the doctrine of getting God's righteousness that is imputed to us by faith without works. In other words, Abraham's life shows us that we get God's righteousness or get saved without being able to do anything to merit it. No works involved. The life of David shows us the great doctrine of getting God's righteousness being imputed to us uh, in a situation where under no circumstances do we deserve to get it. So one shows us that we get it by grace through faith plus nothing. And the life of David shows us that we get it when we shouldn't get it at all and certainly don't deserve it. And those two concepts through the life of those two men are incredible uh, studies to help you basically understand uh, how, it, how it all goes together in the book of Romans. That's why God picked those two men. You've heard me say many times that the Bible's its own dictionary. The Bible defines itself. And, uh, you know, you take the word imputed, and that's a word that most people understand as a Bible word, but they don't really understand how the Bible defines the word imputed. When you go over to James chapter 2, verse 23, and we talked about this uh, when we looked at James and, and studied the great so-called contradiction there, the Bible says, and this talking about Abraham now, it says, And the Scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now there's a verse in James chapter 2 that talks about the, what happened to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And the Bible tells you there that God imputed His own righteousness to Abraham. Then you go back to Genesis chapter 15 where the story actually takes place in verse 5 and 6. And it talks about the same story and it says, And He, God, and He brought him, Abraham, forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars if, if thou be able to number them. And He said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord. Now here it is and he counted it, it to him for righteousness. If that wasn't enough, when you go over to the Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, you find again another reference to the same account back in Genesis chapter 15, and it says in verse 6, Even as Abraham believed God, 
and it was accounted <coughs> to him for righteousness. Now, we've got the Bible definition out. The word imputed means that God put something on your account. The Bible says that when Abraham believed God, it was counted to him, and in Galatians says it was accounted. It was put on his account. The day you and I got saved, this is where the life that we're studying of Abraham and David comes in as the focal point of the book of Romans. The day you and I got saved, God took his righteousness and put it on your account. He imputed it to you and I. Then, without us deserving it, he took our sin debt and imputed that to Jesus Christ and put it on his account. And of course, we know that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus basically paid the account. And that's the whole concept of salvation. In your Bible, both men are tremendous studies. And let's stop for a second here and ask God's blessing on our time this morning, and then we'll continue. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we love you today. And I thank you, Father, for all that you've given us, for those that you've brought here today. I pray, Father, that in the midst of this crowd, Lord, that you'd be with each one in their individual need and their individual heart. You're the only one, Lord, can discern the thoughts, the motives, and the intents of God's people's hearts. And then, Lord, take the Word of God and meet, meet their need today. And, Father, we ask you to do that. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> You'll remember that last week I, I told you that there's seven men in the Old Testament that really uh, form a, make up a composite of what your life should be. Uh, as I come through the Bible over the years, I found basically, uh, and I guess you could say this a couple of different ways, I found basically in your life, and you remember now, when you get saved, when you get saved, God saves you for one purpose, and that point is purpose is to minister the Word of God to somebody else. We got a bad definition of the ministry today. And, uh, you know, and it's because we don't understand the Bible anymore. And this is why I push you so hard so many times to prod you to get you to move forward. Because ministry in the Bible is not you coming to church. It's not what you do where you work, though that obviously your job, uh, you should view your job as, as your mission field, but not necessarily your ministry. Your ministry is in this church. Every ministry you have ought to be an extension of your ministry that you're doing here. And that's why ministry in the Bible is only defined as you working one-on-one -on -one with somebody in the Scriptures or teaching somebody the Bible uh, in whatever form. And in this church, we have a number of ways that you do that. This is why I take the concept of discipleship and develop it in so many people's lives. I'll put... I'll put uh, I'll put maybe a, a new girl or a new guy with somebody, and then I'll, I'll in time, I'll, I'll, I'll put somebody else with them that they can learn the ropes and how to do it. And uh, it's, it's all about, it's all about getting you to the place where you legitimately, in a New Testament Bible format, minister uh, to people in the Word of God, because that's what ministry is. And I also say this, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, nowhere in the Scriptures, and if you've been saved five years or more, and I kind of give everybody around here five years grace just to figure out what's going on. But if you've been saved five years or more uh, and you're not actively involved in teaching somebody the Word of God, there's something wrong in your life. And you can justify it all you want. You can, you can say whatever you want to say about it. But nowhere in the Scriptures, nowhere, nowhere in the Scriptures does God ever acknowledge a child of God that is not involved in ministry and ministry is teaching somebody the Word of God in whatever format through your local church. But you're going to find that the ministry, I found this to be true. 
When you come through the Bible, you'll find that there are men in the Bible that form a composite of what my life as a minister, not a pastor, not all of you will be pastors, but every one of you that is saved this morning should be a minister. And uh, what you do is you learn the ministry uh, through your local church by growing, getting involved yourself, being discipled, discipling somebody else, and then basically moving up those levels to get to where God wants you to be. Nothing exposes, to me anyhow, nothing exposes where a person is really at and what they're really all about till they're faced with the aspect of getting their eyes off themselves and beginning to minister to somebody else. And that is the, one of the greatest tools that you, you read in people's character or in some cases lack of character. But you're going to find that I've noticed over the years in my own life as I've studied the Bible that there's seven areas as a minister. And when you begin to work with people, you're going to find these same seven areas. And there's seven men in the Old Testament that really form the composite of how we're to deal with these things. Now, one of the things that you're going to struggle with and you're going to have to deal with is obviously the world. You're going, and I talked to you last week, to how that the number one problem most of God's people have is their yoke to this world. They can't make the break of the world. And, and you're going to have to deal with that because you're not going to be able to exclude yourself from the world and whatever ministry you have is going to be in the world and you're going to have to see and hear many times all the ungodly stuff that goes on and you're going to have to come to the place where you're so insulated from it that it doesn't affect you in, in ministry. And of course, if you want to learn how to overcome the world, then you study the life of Noah. There's certainly a man that when you study his life, he stood alone alone. In Genesis chapter 6, he stood alone against everybody on planet earth for 120 years. He understood how to overcome the world. Another aspect of ministry that you're going to have to learn and begin to deal with is the aspect of <clears throat> within ministry of keeping your attitude as a servant. That's probably one of the hardest things to do because the ministry constantly will thrust people into the limelight. The ministry, many pastors lose their ability to minister to people simply because they take themselves too seriously. And they actually believe that they're uh, in some in tune into the Godhead, you know, that, uh, and you see them distancing themselves from their people more and more. And of course, the real key is to learn in ministry how that even though you may be a ministering to somebody and working with somebody and you may be in charge of two or three people, you never lose the attitude of being a servant. And I guess the greatest example of that in the Bible would be Moses. Moses shows you how to keep your sanity in the middle of God's people and God's ministry and still be a servant. If you study the life of Moses, Moses shows you very clearly what you're up against when you get into ministry in God's church. A bunch of people that, that complain about everything, whine about everything. Why his whole, you know, one of the greatest character studies in the Bible is Moses. And to watch him go back and forth and what he struggled with. But yet he understood he had a calling of God to minister to God's people. And you, it's, it's comical sometimes. And in it you see the, the relationship that God and Moses had. And it shows you the relationship you and I should have with God. There are some points in the, in the first five books of the Bible <clears throat> that Moses is so uh, mad at the people of God because of their stupidity. He comes in there and gets alone with God. And the Bible says that he spoke with God face to face like a man speaketh to his friend. 
He's one of the two men in the Bible that talks about being God's friend. And there's times in there where Moses goes in with God and he says, God, these people are the worst people, the dumbest people, the stupidest people. I want you to come down and kill every one of them right now and just wipe them off the face of the map. God said, now Moses, now Moses, now Moses, now Moses, come on, now. Then there's time when Moses comes in with God and God is ticked off and God says, Moses, those are the dumbest, stupidest people I ever met in my life. I don't know why I called them out of Egypt. I'm going to wipe every one of them out. And Moses says to God, oh, come on, Lord. You know you don't want to do that. See, if you don't, sitting here this morning, if you don't understand that kind of relationship with God that you can have, you miss out on the, when I talk about the intimacy of a relationship with God. And Moses shows you how to maintain your attitude of a servant in the midst of ministry, which is pretty tough sometimes. As Will Rogers once said, the more you're around people, the better he likes dogs. And I understand that. <laughs> if you want to understand the ministry itself, on all the aspects, God's call in the ministry, the, the holy things of the ministry, the things that you ought to be doing as a minister, then you want to study the life of Samuel. If you want to study how to survive your adversary, the devil, who the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, goes about as a roaring lion seeking who may devour, then you want to study Job. If you want to study how to overcome your flesh and the things of the flesh, and this is another great problem that many of God's people have, and we all struggle with it to some degree. If you want to, if you want to understand how to overcome your flesh and get a handle on the things of the flesh of this world, then you're going to want to study the life of Daniel. But if you want to learn, coming to our two guys now, if you want to learn, and I gave you that because so, about nine or ten of you called me this week and one of these guys and I said, I'll just do it this coming Sunday, so I'll give them to you so I didn't have to do it ten times. But, but if you want to really learn that how, once you get saved, how you begin to protect, perfect your faith to become God's friend, then you study the life of Abraham. If you want to understand God's righteousness imputed to you, with nothing you could do to get it, study Abraham. If you want to study how to have a relationship with the Word of God that will change your life, that will transform you into the image of Christ and everything that you do, study David. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And what a tremendous study that is. Uh, and shall fulfill all of God's will. And we saw from these last two men, Abraham and David, the two aspects last week uh, that you have to have to fulfill all of God's will in your life. And, of course, that's being God's friend and, and getting God's heart, God's heart being the Word of God. You know, a study of Romans would be totally incomplete and completely lacking without a study of these two men's lives. And at the same time, so is your Christian life. Your Christian life will never be what it needs to be. At some point in your life, at some point in your life, you're going to have to do a study on these seven men. And you're going to have to go in there if you ever really take the ministry seriously and you ever fulfill God's will for your life, you're going to have to put aside the tribulation period, put aside the Antichrist, and all those things are good. But you're going to have to take a practical approach to the seven men in the Old Testament that illustrate the seven aspects that you and I need to have that makes up a complete composite. By the way, there's seven men in the Old Testament. There's also seven men in the New Testament. They show you something different, but they're an incredible study. Now, you take David. 
and, uh, and as a study of his life, and we're going we're gonna to look at David for the next three or four weeks, and uh, we're going to kind of break it down so you can understand some things. We don't have time to go into everything about his life. But I think that once now that we see that Romans is built around the life of Abraham and David, and what they represent, it's, it's, it's useless to go any farther in Romans chapter 4 without laying a foundation as a point of reference uh, about these two guys. So we're going to talk about David, and then a little bit later on down in the, in the latter part of Romans chapter 4, then we're going to talk about Abraham, but we want to, uh, we want to begin to look at David today. And I think it will be a, a study. His life is an incredible study. You know, and, and I always make things easy because I, I just, that's the way i got to do it. I'm not the brightest light bulb in the box, and I have to make things easy for me. Uh, and I, in a study of David's life, when I broke it down and I came through his life, I broke David's life down into three aspects. And those three aspects really made it easy for me to grasp a lot of material. And that's basically the same thing I do for you in Institute, if you, you know how I break the Bible down. But the first aspect of David's life is David as a young shepherd boy. The second aspect of David's life will be David as the king. And then the third aspect of David's life will be David as God's man. The, those three areas, breaking a man's his life down into those three areas gives you everything that you need in a very systematic way to grasp what you've got. And that's the way, by the way, we're going to study it. Today will be a kind of an introductory message, and then we're going to take David as the shepherd, David as the king, and David as God's man. And hopefully in those three areas, we'll be able to lay it down and, and give you a foundation that you can really look at. Now, in your Bible... Not only do I break David down into three categories that help me understand it, and I, don't, I didn't do it this way uh, because I saw this. It just happened this way. But there's also three books of the Bible that break David down to give you what you want. When you study First and Second Samuel, you're going to find that these books, First and Second Samuel, record the physical life of David. They're going to bring you from David as a little shepherd boy to David the king. They're going to show you everything that you need to know about how to build a relationship with God in the tender years. And I look at many of you right now that have come into our church, and I look at you in those very formidable tender years, where right now what you're doing with God or what you get with God or the instruction that you get from me or how I help you or how your discipleship person works with you is going to be absolutely vital of how you come out on the other end. And we see that... We see that we see his formative years, his youth, him being a shepherd, the tender years with God. We see his battle with Goliath. Then we come up to the point where he rises up the, the level just like you do, and we see his anointed as king. We see some of his fatal errors in judgment, and we see his penalty for it. Some of the greatest parallels you'll ever find from his life to yours. Lessons to be learned in the life of David. Lessons to be learned in the life of Abraham that show us, underlying all the time, that here's a man that got God's righteousness imputed to him when he didn't deserve it and there was, he should have lost it. And we'll talk about that as we come through and we'll, we'll, we'll tie it all together. Now, your first two books are 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and these books, as I said, deal with the physical life of David, and they show you the first two aspects, David the shepherd boy and David the king. Then we have 2 Chronicles. And 2 Chronicles, or excuse me, 1 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles. Now, 1 Chronicles, on the other hand, deals with David in an entirely different light. 
Here we see his connection to Christ as God's man. You know what you find? You find in First and Second Samuel, you'll find all the negative things that David does. You'll find in First Chronicles not one mention of Bathsheba, Uriah, the Hittite. You won't find one mention of anything he did, does bad. You know why? <clears throat> because in First Chronicles, he's portrayed as Christ, and you see the personalities and the character traits of Christ in his life in that book. And there's no negative things about David in that book. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And uh, you're going to see that in chapter 1 through 9, it basically deals with the geological line back to Christ. If I remember right, I think there's nine chapters on genealogies in the first nine chapters there that all document and deal with the fact that David being uh, in the line of the son of David or Christ. When you get into chapter uh, 10 through chapter 20, it deals with the character traits. It shows you his personality traits that make him the man that God, uh, after God's own heart. You find there is what God saw and what God had with him. And it's not focused on the physical things. It's focused on the spiritual thing. You know what? I remember one time reading that a number of years ago and putting that in my Bible, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. The way his life is broken down itself. Now, keep in mind that David and Abraham, you know, represent something in a parallel in your life and my life. And I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, wow, the way his life breaks down into two sections, one physical and one spiritual, is exactly the picture of our way our life breaks down with our old nature and our new nature. And you're going to find there's a side of you and me that is very wicked. There's a side of you and me that is not pleasing to God. But then there's a side of you and me that is very pleasing to God. And when God looks at it, it's sinless and it's perfect. It's the flesh versus the new nature. The old nature versus the new nature. It's the old man versus the spiritual man. And when you come through those books in the Bible, First and Second Samuel represents the physical man, David. But when you get into First Chronicles, it represents the heavenly man, the spiritual man, David. And it shows you the picture of your, you and my relationship, our character. You know what? If you want to chart out your own life course, really, and you want, to, you, want to, you want to stay on course and you don't want to get off the track and you want to make sure that you keep your life uh, as functional as God as you can, and I know in this world everybody strays and gets messed up at some point. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it. But the bottom line is don't get too far off course. If you want to keep in, make, keep in your life from making some really bad choices in life, study David. Study the lessons of his life and what he went through and how, in spite of it all, study the physical man and the spiritual man, and you're going to come up with some great things that will help you uh, keep from making some really bad choices in life, which obviously are going to lead to some very bad uh, tragedies in your life. And yet I'm sure as I'm saying that, there's some people probably sitting here under the sound of my voice. You got him in every crowd. Somebody out there is probably saying, well, look at David. Well, there's a great case. David screwed up and made all kinds of bad choices, but God said at the end of his life, you know, he was God's man. And in fact, the Bible said that he, and at the end of his life, he only had one thing against him. That was the matter of the Uriah Hittite. Some people are going to listen to what I'm saying today and going to walk out of here saying, well, you know what? That works for him. It'll work for me. I'm just going to do my thing and, and love God and to go to church and do this and do that, do what I want to do. And if David could get screwed up as much as he did and still God say he was a man of my own heart, then I'm going to try it. You know, you've got, actually got people to think that way. I've actually had Christians tell me, honestly, this is true. I've actually had Christians tell me that they were going to take their chances to the judgment seat of Christ. The fact was they're saved and they know they're going to heaven. So maybe the judgment seat of Christ is a bad thing. 
But so what? You're going to get to go to heaven after the end of it. So uh, I'll just, you know, take a leather thong and put it in my mouth and bite down on it till I, or a stick, you know. And when I get through the other side, then it'll be okay and I'll be in heaven. You're an idiot. You're an absolute fool. Somebody that says, well, David went through. Yeah, he did. But did you see the price tag that he paid to get back? Sure, yeah, you can live your life and do what you want to do and, and, and just say, well, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, David did it, I can do it. But don't make that rash statement without stopping and look at the price tag that he had to pay by making some of the decisions that he made. Incredible. And as I said, we're going to look at his life the next couple of weeks and I want to bring you through starting next week and show you David as the shepherd. I want to bring you through and show you David as the king. And I want to bring you through and show you David as God man. Do you ever see the composite of that? Right now, if you're saved, you ought to be, a, and I'm giving you again three or four years to get your feet on the ground. I'm not, I don't, every time I say start talking like this, I know all you young Christians start taking it to personal, and all you older Christians just let it blow over your head. So uh, the bottom line is I'm not talking to you young Christians. But you ever see the composite in that? Right now, if you've been saved three or four years, whatever the case may be, you ought to be a shepherd. You ought to have somebody that you were shepherding in this church. You know why? You ever seen that? David started out a shepherd, and he wound up being a king. Now, you see the process? Right now, you ought to be a shepherd. But someday, if you do what's right as a shepherd, you're going to be a king when Christ comes back. And in the process, you ought to be God's man or God's woman. See how that thing works? Right now, you ought to be a shepherd. You've been, I'll just say it. You may not like it. I don't care if you like it or not. If you've been saved five years or more in the church and you're not shepherding somebody right now. I had a guy and a wife about two or three years ago, maybe four years ago, they left the church. And one of the things they left is the fact that I didn't give money to anybody to disciple. You know what my answer was to that? You want somebody to disciple? Where is it in the, where is it in the, bylaws that I have to give you somebody to disciple. You want somebody to disciple? Go win somebody to Christ and disciple them. Why do you always look to me to give you what your ministry is? Now, obviously, when people come into this ministry, there's people that I'm going to use to work with that. But if you really are just that dogged that you want to, get on your knees and don't get off your knees till God gives you somebody to win to Christ and then disciple them. See? You ought to be a shepherd right now. Someday you're going to be a king. And he ought to be God's man in between the two points. Great study. That's a good sermon, by the way, if some of you want to steal it. Well, don't laugh. I stole it. You think I come up with it on my own? You know what? I think that looking at shepherd, king, and, and God's man, I really think that putting this thing in a context, I think we'll learn more if we take the time to uh, look at the first thing. You know, I, that's the way I am. When I buy a book... I always read the last chapter first. I do. Because that way I can tell if I really want to... Some of you are laughing and you do the same thing, don't you? See, you give yourself away. You, you got to learn. Become the, just learn to have a stone look on your face, you know. I, you know why? Because then if I don't like it, I don't read the whole book. And if somebody gets killed, then I don't have to read it. That's the best part anyhow, the gory part at the end, you know. And, you know, did you know that God wanted you to read the last part of the, His book before you read the first part? The last part, I don't mean this in a bad way, but the last part of God's book, Revelation, is more important than the first part of His book, if you know what I'm talking about. Because the last part of His book is the last prayer in the Bible. And that last prayer in the Bible ought to be your prayer this morning. 
And so uh, I, I'm going to keep in keeping with the way I do things. I want to preach a message on the, on, the, on, on the problems David got into before we get into those three things. I think it'll give us a perspective. I think it really will. I thought about this all week. And I want, I want this to be on our minds as we study it as a point of reference. And if I would wait till the end and do it, you'd already forget what I'm going to say. But I, I guarantee you, I promise you today, you will not forget in the next couple of weeks what I'm going to say to you today. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be a good point of reference for all of us. You know, I, I've, I've been around in Christianity for a number of years and, and dealt with many, many people. But I don't think there's ever been a time in my life looking across Christianity uh, where I have seen a more, a more time where some of God's people have made some more incredible bad choices in their lives. And I, I look at the disasters that are unfolding in people's lives. Uh, and I'm not talking about necessarily here, though I'm sure there are. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about in Christianity in general. And, uh, you know, some of God's people have some made some really bad choices in life after they have been saved. And they make those choices not understanding that with every bad choice comes a consequence. Now, I'm going to be very honest to you. Some consequences are less than others. I mean, obviously, if you go out and speed down I-70 and you get a pulled over by a state highway patrol, you know, the consequences of speeding was a ticket that's probably 150 bucks. Now, that's bad, but you go out and murder somebody, the consequences are a, a lot worse. In other words, what I'm saying is this. There's some bad decision you can make, you can skate by, and there's some bad decisions you make are going to kill you dead in your tracks spiritually. The, 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 the key is don't make any more than you have to. And, and the real key is don't make any at all. But I know that's, you know, for us, that's not going to work too well. I, I've seen people make bad decisions that have affected their children. I've seen husbands make bad decisions that affected their wives, affected their marriages. I've seen people make bad uh, decisions that have disrupted their lifestyle in a great way. And not to say, not even to bring in the fact, and I don't mean to minimize it, but, but that I've seen them make bad decisions that at the end of the day affected their walk with God and their relationship with God. And it's easy to do. It's easy to do. Violations of God's principles always come and always set in motion an automatic law. A number of automatic laws. It just happens. The fact is, the laws sometimes, uh, the, the offense or the violation is lesser than other offenses, but there's never a time. Like I said, you get caught speeding, the consequences are fine. You get caught murdering somebody, consequences is probably probation in our world we live in today. It's a, it, it, but there's, the consequences go up as the offense goes up or the bad choice goes up, as I should say. Now, I want to tell you something. The easiest thing in the world today for you and me to do and I'm speaking to myself, too. The easiest thing in the world today that we all do is, and for easy us to do, is to deceive ourselves. We really do. I guarantee you, most of God, if, if, if most of God's people knew what the Bible put down in detail as a critique of what it takes to have a real working relationship with God, you'd find that very few of God's people really have that relationship. I remember reading a story in Luke chapter 2, verse 42 and 46, and it's one of my favorite stories, and it illustrates my point. And it's a story about the young Jesus when he was just a boy of 12 years old. And his parents and a group of his brothers and sisters were all going someplace and, uh, and on their way uh, to another place, and they were traveling uh, for like two days. 
Then they're all going around having a great time talking and everything, and suddenly after two days' time, somebody said, you know Jesus hasn't been with us since we left? They had went on a journey, God knows how many miles, had all kinds of family interaction, but it was only after a day or two days that somebody suddenly that Jesus wasn't in their midst anymore. You know what that tells me? That tells me that you can go on down the road of life thinking Jesus is walking with you, when in actuality, He's not. You know what happened to that family at that point? They were so busy talking about everything else and getting involved in everything else that Jesus became a a non-event. And they just assumed that He was back there in the back somewhere. Oh, you know how he is. He's probably catching tadpoles. He'll catch up. You know how he is. He's out there, you know, throwing rocks at the scribe, you know, whatever he's doing. He'll catch up. He'll get here. Truth of the matter is, he wasn't there at all. In our lives as Christians, we go down this road where we think he's with us. Now, I'm not talking about not being saved. I'm talking about in your walk and your fellowship. We think he's with us. We think he's in what we're doing. But that's why... When you get into the Bible, you'll find out what it really critiques. Like what I gave you last week, when I gave you the three controversies. Boy, my phone was buzzing off all week on that one. And I ask you what it really takes to please God. You see, you get those, we get those suppositions in our mind that we think, oh, if I go to church, that'll please God. If I give this or do this, that'll please God. Well, if I'm discipling somebody, that please God. None of those things please God. Those things are things you ought to be doing because you're a Christian. What does it take to please God is one thing. And unfortunately, most of us don't have that one thing. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what you've got here. It's it's an incredible thing. You know, the older I get, I call myself an exacto. You know, when you go to Hobby Lobby, you buy those little exacto knives. Those little sharp razor blades that you can not like scissors or, or a machete or, or, you know, a regular pair of scissors. An exacto knife means you can cut exacto. Exacto is Spanish for exactly. <laughs> and an exacto knife means that you're going to cut exactly. It's, it's so fine. It's so sharp. You can, it's like a surgeon's scalpel. And you can, you don't, it ain't like, you know, if you went in to have surgery and you look on the table over there and you, you, you know, you saw these real fine razor blade scalpels with a real curved edge that fits the surgeon's hand with that little sharp razor blade. And you look over the other side and there's a chainsaw and, and you know, and an axe, you know, and a big pair of scissors. You're going to get a little nervous. I want the surgeon to be an exacto. And you and I, when it comes to the Bible, ought to be an exacto. The older I get the more I realize, and I'm not saying that I figured it all out. I'm as dumb as the next guy, probably dumber. But I do know this. I know that everything in that Bible is important. And the older I get, the more exact I want to be with the Bible for my own personal relationship with God. I don't want to miss anything. I'm 58 years old, and I don't have a lot of time to spend. Uh, I missed a lot of things in life. I don't want to miss much more. But you know, the Bible does many, many things. And one of the attributes of the Bible is the way that it lays out every problem that man gets into. There isn't anything that you and I aren't going to get into that the Bible doesn't show you the cause and the effect. We call it attitude and action. When you develop the wrong attitude, it's always going to produce the wrong action. It's just that simple. That's why I push and push and push and push and push for some of you to, or all of you, to make your decisions in life based on biblical principles. 
because that's, that's what I call exacto. See? That's, that's exactly the way you're supposed to do it. And when you come through, you'll find that the Bible uh, lays out the, every sin that a man or a person can get into. It shows us the cause and the effect. It shows us the basic laws, the law of sowing and reaping. It shows us the law of violated principles. And then it shows us the law of compounded sin. But the Bible, not only by men's lives, does it show me uh, the problems man gets into and the consequences, but if you're really paying attention, you know what it does? And this is more important to me. And if you're going to ever deal with people, if you're ever going to get into the uh, mode of ministry where you're working one-on-one with people that, that have severe issues, and when it comes to dealing with people, I, when, we, when we get into counseling in the, in the Institute coming up here next year, I'll show you that dealing with people, I categorize it in three levels. I kind of catalyze it in the medical world. There's some people you're going to work with that I call it band-aids and methylate. They just got little ouchies. And you can work with them and help them through that. Sometimes they, you know, they're just lonely or sometimes they, they're just, you don't, they're not fulfilled. And it, it, no real problem. They're just the natural little band-aids of methylate. You, you be with them. You disciple them. You bring them in. You get them involved in softball or volleyball or, or whatever we do. And that pretty much brings them right in and gives them what they want. Then you have what I, the next level, you have what I call uh, broken arms and appendectomies. They require a little more than band-aids of methylate. You got to be able, and that would be somebody in a bad relationship or a broken relationship or somebody that maybe is depressed or somebody that's got, you know, lost their job or somebody that's got, you know, a sin in their life or whatever, just a good, you know, whatever. And then you have those that what I call uh, brain surgery and heart transplants, third level. That requires somebody who really knows what they're doing. That requires somebody who, who, who understands just about everything in the Bible that it lays out uh, in dealing with human nature and how to deal with it. And along with that, you've got to understand not only does the Bible lay out the cause and effect of man's problems, but you know what else it does? And this is where you really get into it. It shows you long before that sin ever manifested itself, the bad choice that that person made that opened up the door for that bad sin to manifest itself someplace down the line. It's an incredible study. You just don't learn what the man did. When I deal with somebody that's got some real issues or some real problems, you know what I do? I don't want them just to, I don't want to just fix their problem. I think I do them a severe injustice if I just show them how to fix their problem. I think along with that, I've got to take them back and show them the bad choice they made that got them into the mess that they're in. Otherwise, they're never going to learn from the mistake. It's not just about what you did or what you didn't do. It's about what was your thought process? What was your decision-making? On what principle or lack thereof did you make that decision uh, that brought about? And so many times we focus on the problem and we never go back and look at the decision-making process that, that put that problem into flourishing and brought it about. And I think it's an incredible thing. There's some, I've got a list of about 20 of them in the Bible, and I keep adding to them as I go through, and over the years, you know, maybe more than that, I don't know. But, you know, stop and look at just a couple. I'll show you what I meant, so if you don't follow what I'm saying. You take Samson. Now, Samson's found in Judges chapter 13 through Judges chapter 16. Samson's life, when you read it, is a picture of, of what your life and my life uh, should be. God called Samson. God called Samson to be a deliverer of the nation of Israel. You know the story. The Philistines are delivering, the, are, are oppressing the nation of Israel. And God calls Samson, sets Samson apart, 
to take God's side with God's people against the enemies of God. You know, basically, that's what God has saved and called you to do. We talked about this last week. If God saved, if you're saved here this morning, God saved you so you would take God's side against the world and help God's people. You know there's a lot of people out there, saved people and lost people, that are under the bondage of this world, that God has called you to liberate them through the Word of God, just like He called Samson to liberate the, His people from the Philistines. And you know why most of God's people will never realize that in life and never do it? The same, same reason that, the, that Samson did. Now, what was Samson's problem? You say, oh, his problem was Delilah. Delilah got him, gave him a haircut, lost his hair, and lost his strength, and then he wound up, no, 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 no. You see, that's what I mean. Delilah was not his problem. Delilah was just the manifestation of a problem, that, of a bad choice that he made. No, no, his bad choice and his problem goes all the way back uh, at the beginning in chapter uh, 14, 2, with the worst words out of his mouth. You know the first words out of his mouth? I have seen a woman. Get her for me. His problem was an attitude that he had about only what he wanted. It was about what he wanted. That's where the problem started. You look at Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. Under Rehoboam, the nation of Israel uh, goes into a great disaster. One of the greatest disasters that the house of Israel really never recovers from. It was the fact where he split the kingdom of Israel or the house of Israel. He split it north and south and it, it, it just devastated. In fact, that's what the devil did. The divide, devil divided Israel and then he conquered Israel. That's what he did. Now, Rehoboam, again, he had the opportunity to take over after his father Solomon. He had the ability to, to be and do everything that carried the thing on. But what happened? He screwed it up, and the reason he screwed it up, and the reason the fact that he, he split those tribes was because of a decision that he made. Long before he did what he did. Somebody said, well, Solomon really messed the thing up when he split the nation of Israel and the devil came in in that division and the house of Israel got divided and they got conquered. Yeah, but that wasn't his problem. You ever see what his problem was? Problems in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 6 through 10. You know what he did? He forsook the wise counsel that his father listened to and he got to get eggheads around himself that were young and didn't have no experience in life and he listened to them instead of the old men who knew God and he took some bad advice and he ruined the house of Israel. You know, I've seen God's people do the same thing. I've seen you, you, you and I'm going to tell you right now, the devil is after your house. He's after your house. This would be one thing if the devil was just after you. You're going to see down through here when we get to David that he's after your house. And the devil split the house of Israel. And when he did it, it's because of a decision that, that Rehoboam would not listen to the wise counsel of somebody that knew what they were talking about. They got his advice from all of his buddies out there. And everybody, everybody today has their own homespun remedy for solving your problems and your issues. And he got the biggest mess he ever got into, and it split his house. And how many times have I seen a child of God uh, in, a, in a family where the house gets split right down the middle because of the fact that they don't listen, they don't listen to the biblical principles, they're too busy getting what everybody else's opinion is and try to run their life like that. It's never about the end result, it's about where did it get messed up. You take Israel itself as a nation, here's a good one. 
In 606 B.C., the nation of Israel went into an absolute tailspin from which even to this day it's never recovered. And you know where it started? It started by when they got the wrong king. It didn't start in 606 B.C.B.C. It didn't start with Rehoboam. It didn't start with Ahab. It started when they were looking at two choices. One of them God's choice and the other one the devil's choice. Now here's a great example. They took Saul, which was not God's choice. It was the people's choice. What was the first clue that Saul was not going to work out? Oh, hey, I know by appearances he looked like he was God's man. The Bible said he's taller than anybody else in the kingdom. The Bible says that, that he, he, he had a magnetic personality and people were drawn to him. But what was the kicker? What should we be looking at in any decision process other than the guy's stature? The Bible says David, on the other hand, was a little runt. Why, when they brought the sons of Jesse before uh, Samuel to make the king, they didn't even bother calling David up. You know why? He was little, he was scrawny, and he, nobody thought this guy would ever be king. And that's exactly the man God wanted. You know how Israel got messed up? They took the wrong king. You know why they took the wrong king? They weren't paying attention to the little things in the Bible. Somebody raise your hand and tell me. Somebody, if you would, somebody raise your hand and tell me what that Jew should have known Saul will never work out if he was paying attention to his Bible. Anybody? We won't spend here all day, I'll tell you. You know what the problem was? He's from the wrong tribe. He's from Benjamin. Genesis 49 says that when the scepter comes, it'll come from Judah. You got to pay attention to, you got to be an exacto when it comes to that Bible. You don't ever look at the appearance. Well, he must be the guy. Look how big he is. Look how tall he is. Wow, what a charismatic personality. Whoa, does he have a way with people? Yeah, but he's from the wrong tribe. That's how they got messed up. How about Paul? Let's jump over to the New Testament. Paul's a great example of what I call the burden of God versus the bullheadedness of man. Paul was the greatest Christian ever lived. But he could not get out of his head that he was going down to Jerusalem. God told him in the book of Acts three times, three times, don't go to Jerusalem. But he's bullheaded. Nobody's going to tell Paul what to do. Here's a classic example that he wanted the Jews to do more, do right more than they did. Counseling Rule 101. He, he, he had it in his heart. It became a burden. He wanted the Jews. God says, you're not going down there. I've called you to the Gentiles. But he's so bullheaded. He's going to do it his way no matter what God says. God said people to him. He sent his friends to him. Everybody said, Paul, don't make that choice. Lost the last two years of his ministry and wound up being in jail for those two years. God only knows what he would have done if he'd have had a full ministry. I mean, God used it the way it was, and he tells us that. Solomon's another great example. Solomon's another great example. Solomon's a great example. You know what Solomon's a great example of? He's the only man in the Bible. You've heard me say this before. He's the only man in the Bible that's both a type of Christ and a type of the Antichrist. Now, I know what that means doctrinally. But you know what that parallel means to me? You ever study his life back there when he goes down the tubes after chapter 10, down around the middle of the chapter? You realize what he does? 
You realize here's a saved man who followed God, wrote, five, wrote four books of your Bible, and laid those things out and put them in there, what we call the wisdom books. And you know what he did? He took his children and burned them in the fire of Moloch to the false gods at his lowest point. You know what that tells me? I'll tell you right now. Some of you saved people are going to heaven and your kids are going to hell. You'll put them in that fire just like he put them in the fire. The parallels are incredible. Bad choices in your life are going to lead to disasters because an automatic law or several automatic laws kick in when you decide to do something other than what the Word of God says. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, letting his kids go down there and putting those little babies on the fire of Molech when they crank those arms up and they, and they bring those arms up and dump that little baby into that brass open belly filled with fire and it's a picture of exactly what happens with God's people. You know where Solomon's problem started? You say, yeah, yeah, started in chapter 10, verse 14, where you start coming down there, all of a sudden, 666 shows up. No, 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 that's not where it started. You want to be an exacto when it comes to the Bible. You know where it started? It started in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 37 and 38, and 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, where the Bible says that he was seven years building God's house, but he was 13 years building his own. Don't ever take more time building this flesh temple that you've got than you do building the one God's inside you. Don't ever make your physical house better off and bigger than the God's house that lives inside you. Don't ever get so caught up that you spend more time with the physical things of this world and the grandioso things you think you just got to have and leave the house of God in disarray. See how that thing works? Now, those are some of the most incredible... Con and I could have taken every one of those and added about 20 to it and just ruined our day more than I already have. But you take David. You know what his problem was? Somebody says, oh, I know, I know. It was murder and adultery with Uriah and Bathsheba. No, 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 no. That was the, what the, that was the fruit spawned by the real issue. The real problem David had was simply this. A choice that he made. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll show you the choice. And we'll find out. And you look at this, and you'll find out first before we ever look at the David life's David and see what God did for him, where he got off track. I think it'll be very instructive to you to keep it in perspective throughout our whole study. Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and he destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rebath. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked up on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. You know what his problem was? Had nothing to do with murder and adultery. That was the end result of a bad decision that he made. You know the decision that got that thing going? You know the decision that brought the end result and put automatically in effect? You know what it was? He stayed out of the battle. He stayed out of the battle. And the thing that's going to get God, you want to study the life of David and make the parallels to your life? I'll tell you. 
You and I, as a New Testament Christian, Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8, there's no discharge from this war. No reason at all. You can't ever get out of the battle. It doesn't matter the reason. You do. The problem is the fact that you think you can and you can survive. We're just using David as an example. People get into the jam. I watch it all the time. All my life. They get in the jam and the first thing that goes is God. First thing that goes is God. Automatically. They drop Bible study. They drop ministry. They don't have time. They got to get two or three jobs to do this and do that. You see, you got into a mess by a series of bad choices. Now the devil's got you right where he wants you. The pressure's on. So you make another bad choice by cutting God's program out of your life. And you say to yourself, well, you know what? When I, oh, how many times I've heard this over here. When I get this fixed, then I'll get back in. You're a fool. Once you're out of the battle by a bad choice, the devil makes sure you don't get back. And if you do get back, where do you see the price tag that comes with it? You're kidding yourself. I know a kid right now, and he comes to church every once in a while, one of the nicest guys you ever met. And I love him. He came back here about, oh, I don't know, two, three months ago. After the church, and he just pops in every, about every six months when he gets really convicted or some disaster falls in his life. Came in here a couple of months ago, got me aside over there, and he said, Bob, he said, you know what? He said, my life's really a mess. And I said, tell me something I don't know. Your life's been a mess forever. And you know why? Because you won't do what's right. He said, I got problems in my wife. I got problems in my family. I said, no kidding. But why do you have that? Look at the choices you've made. He says, you know, he says, you got to help me. And I said, I'll do whatever I can. But what we've got to do first is stop making bad choices. He says, I got a daughter who's going to be, who's ready to be saved and she wants to be saved. And I don't know how to win her to Christ. And I said, that's the consequences of what the bad choices you've made. You're going to have to clean up your life, do what you got to do, and get your family back in church. Haven't seen him now for four months. You know what will happen? He's saved. He's a saved man. He's going to heaven. His kids are going to split hell wide open. This attack is against your house. It'd be one thing if it was just you. The devil's got his crosshairs on you. He's going to get your kids in hell, and this kid is the tool for the devil to do it. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I'm telling you what, Paderinsky was a great piano player, great concert piano player, one of the greatest the world has ever seen. And he used to say, he used to say, you know what? He says, I practice 10 hours a day, seven days a week. He says, if I miss one practice, I can tell I'm off. If I miss two days of practice, the music critics can tell I'm off. And if I miss a week of practice, everybody knows I'm off. You know what your problem is? You've been away from practice too long. That's your problem. For whatever reason. Whatever reason. You've not been practicing. Some of you are all worried about the institute. The desk coming up. 160 questions and counting. Well, let me just say something to you. And I'll give you, if I can give you some good fatherly advice, some of you ought to come in before the institute and just quit. Because if you flunk the test, you're going to come in to me and sit down in front of me and explain to me what part you didn't understand when I told you what it took. 
And you ought to just save yourself a lot of trouble. Because it's very obvious at this point, this thing is not important to you. It's like everything else in your Christian life. While it was shiny and bright, you wanted it. But ah, when you do some dumb things because of dumb decisions and the consequences come, God's the first one out. Ministry's the first thing to go. It's a test that you can't study for. So you might as well quit right now studying for it. You can't study for it. There's no deep questions. There's nothing in there that's going to be trick. It's, it, it's going to take exactly what I told you. If you should have been putting your stuff in your Bible and, and learning it every week and putting it everything in its place and bringing it right down there and going over it every week, you will pass this test. If you've not been doing that, you are not going to pass it and you're going to tell me why. To whom much is given, much is required. It took me 40 years to learn that Bible. It took me, it's going to take me another 100 years to get it in practice. And for you to take what it took me 40 years and I give it to you in less time and then you, I'm not even going to say what you did. Well, you're just going to dump it? You ain't going to take it real? We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Tom says, well, you know what, I'll just, well, I'll get back, I'll get, let me show you what I mean when I tell you that you, you may get back, but my God, where do you see the price tag? Where do you see what it pays? Where do you see the price tag that comes along with it? Like a guy said one time, my kids are always saying the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Yeah, maybe so, but where do you see the water bill? There's always a price tag. Now, I want you to see this thing with David. David's fundamental problem had nothing to do with Bathsheba. His fundamental problem had to do with he got out of the battle. He quit ministry. He got more involved in whatever he was involved in. And he suddenly said to himself, I don't have to be on Thursday night anymore. I don't have to be at Institute. I don't have to study my stuff. I've arrived. Or, i got so many issues in my life right now, I just can't do all those things. Yeah, you got those issues in your life because of a bad choice, a bad decision, and now you're going to make another bad decision and put God out thinking in your mind, Oh, I'll get back. Let me show you why you won't. And if you do, let me show you the price tag. Oh, the law of compounding sin. Or one bad choice leads to another. Here's what you're here, here's here's what you're up against. Look at first look at First Chronicles chapter twenty one verse one. Now this takes place just a short time later, after the first decision. Now we see David making another bad choice. But oh my 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 my, what what detail was in this one? Whoa boy, God pulled back the veil and shows us something here. This devil's watching the whole thing. The devil's watching the whole thing and then the automatic law. Once he makes the first bad choice, the automatic laws begin to go into effect. The devil watches what happens and he's right on track with it. And now we see the law of compounding effect of bad choices. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1. Just a short time later, another bad choice. But oh my God, what a choice. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David. To number the people. Now do you get that? It isn't about you. It isn't about just you. If it was, it'd be one thing. 
The devil wasn't just after David. He wanted to destroy the house of Israel, and David was the tool he was going to do it by. The devil wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy your marriage. And many times, God's people are the very tools that the devil uses. You know why? Because they go from one bad choice to another. One bad choice to another. Now, let me just take a second and explain to you the concept or the problem with, with, with numbering the people. First of all, it's a direct violation of Deuteronomy chapter 30, I think it is, verse 11. You see, when the nation of Israel were going to war, going into battle, it was perfectly acceptable for them to number the people. Find out in a muster, in a draft, how many able-bodied combat many men they had. No other time, no other time was Israel told to or allowed to number the people. Because the numbering of the people, other than for war, was a, was a national pride week thing. It was a look at who we are. David has already made one bad choice. He's gotten out of the battle. And once you get out of the battle, if you ever get in, once you get out of the battle, it's not, well, I'll get back. No, no, no. You know, if, if, if it was just the perfect world, yes, the devil's got his crosshairs on you. He's going to compound into your life. He's going to make sure you don't. And if you do, there's going to be a price tag to pay. Look at his life. Don't, don't look at me like I'm, a, like I'm a frog in a hailstorm. Look at his life. His life stands in great stark contrast to what God wants us to do with our lives. Yet he was God's man. Don't tell me a Christian can't get into these things. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number the people. Devil's just not after you. He wants your house. He'll use you as the tool to get your kids in hell. And you allow him to do it because you just consistently keep on making bad choices and taking the getting out of the battle, getting out of the ministry, and because you got to do what you got to do, and you because you made a bad choice in it instead of doing what you need to do. That's what David did. David made one bad choice. You know what he's doing now? He's in control. God's not. That's why he numbered the people. He wants to feel good about himself. He wants to feel good about his decision to stay out of the battle. Do you know what he does? He gets out there and he says, number all the people. Let's see how many people we got. Ah, 9,443,000. Oh, yeah. That's why I couldn't go to battle. I got a lot of people to take care of. Oh, that's why. Oh, I feel better about myself now. Oh, yeah, there was a time the kings went to war, and I would have went any other time in my life. But look at all the people now I got. Look at all the responsibility. Boy, I'm glad I numbered the people. I really feel good about my decision now. And my friend, that the second decision he made was just as bad as the first decision. It was a, it was a, it was a second bad decision in a list of long bad decisions that David made. When you get out of God's battle and you try to fix it yourself, God's out and you're in. And from this point on, David's life is an absolute train wreck. Absolute disaster. You know the Bible's two books? Oh, Bible's many books. But in particular in my message today, the Bible's two books. The Bible's a how-to book. And then the Bible's a how-not-to book. The Bible's a how-to book to go to heaven, how to go to heaven. 
how to walk with God, how to perfect your faith, how to be God's friend. But the Bible's a how-not-to book when it talks about how to ruin your kids, ruin your family, ruin your marriage, ruin your ministry, and ruin your life. And I'm going to tell you something. Once you get into the idea of making bad choices and these compounding effects come into your life, it's really a hard cycle to break. You know why? Because you've deceived yourself. You think God is still with you. And every decision you make is slowly taking you farther away from God. What in the world do you think? That whatever problem you got, whatever situation you're in, that you got to cut out God or something God does so you can fix it? Where does that start with? When you get into a disaster, whatever the disaster may be, you ought to run to God, not from God. You ought to make sure the very number one thing you do is got every duck in your row and you're in the battle. But when you step out of the battle, you start making bad choices. And those bad choices, every one of them, take you a little bit farther away. Every one of them wear on you a little bit more. Every one of them affects your attitude. Every one of them takes you a little farther away from God. Every one of them says, oh, I'm not going to go tonight. Every one of them looks for an excuse that you don't do this or you don't do this, but you once did. Every one of them, and pretty soon you get up and you just simply say, I ain't doing it anymore. That's how everything happens. It isn't about the end result. It's the process of making a bad decision that puts you into that. You say, well, what can I do? Short term, very clearly, stop making bad choices. Find out, find out what bad choices you've made. Don't make anymore. Short term, stop making bad choices. Long term, get a plan. Find out systematically how you're going to do this. Get out of the mess you're in without violating any more biblical principles. And, get it. and it may take some sacrifice. You may have to give up some things. You may have to lose some things. You may have to sell some things. You may have to do some things. Just make sure it isn't God. You say, well, David got back. Look at the price tag. You know what it took for David to get back? Now listen to me. You may think I'm mad this morning. I'm not mad. I am burdened. For God's people, not just you. This tape will go out. God knows where God will use it. They go all over the world. But listen to me. You're going to get back. You see now clearly that it's not about the end result. It's the bad choices we make that bring about that. You realize, well, David got back after four trips to the cemetery bearing four of his kids. Is that what you want? Is that what it's going to take for God to rattle your cage? He lost the boy with Bathsheba in 1219. He lost Amman in 1328. He lost Absalom in 1818. That's interesting. Six, 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 six. And he lost Amasa in 2010. Then he lost his mind over there in 2112 through 15. When, when one of the kings of Achish come up, you know what he does? He's so fearful. He's so afraid. He's so lost the power of God. He's so out of control. He's so made so many bad choices. He's afraid they're going to kill him. Do you know what he does? He feigns madness. The king of Israel. The man after God's own heart. Bible says he's got a beard. And he actually, he actually gets all the spit in his mouth. He can. Big load of spit. Now, you see, if you were really a child of God and God's enemies had you, 
You know what the philosophy is, don't you? You know what an old guy said one time? He said, if the Indians get you, they're going to torture you to death. So that's why I always chew me a big old wad of chewing tobacco. He says, and I keep a big old chaw right in my mouth, and when they tie me up, he says, I'll wait till the biggest, ugliest, meanest one walks by, and I'll put that right in his face. Chances are he'll kill you right on the spot and you won't be tortured. Now, that's a good plan. Hope I never have to try it because I don't like chewing tobacco. I'd have to do grape gum on him or something. I don't know. But you know what? You know what David did? No, no. He gets that big water spittle. And instead of looking at the enemies of God and going, <laughs> you know what he does? He lets it come out all over his beard and run down his face. And he comes up to the gate and he acts like a madman looking around with spit coming down his face. And the king of Asia says, well, we can't kill him. He's nuts. I thought I was going to fight the man of God. I'm fighting a, I'm fighting a lunatic. Just let him go. What a way for a child of God to act in the face of God's enemies. But he's fearful now. He's afraid. He's lost the power of God. Bad choices have brought him to the place now where he's in a mess. He's an absolute mess. One of his, he had problems in his family. Oh, my God. One of his boys kills another. Yeah. Absalom kills Ammon. One of his own boys killed another one of his boys. Killed him. Killed him. One of his own boys tries to take his kingdom and becomes his worst enemy. Oh, and when you read these things, you've got to get down between the actual events. Read the heart of David. When Absalom leaves and becomes his enemy, never to see David again and David never to see him. David stands out on the gate late at night, overlooking the balcony, on the balcony, overlooking the road coming in. And he says, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, where are you, Absalom? Why don't you come home? Never saw him again. There was a battle. And Absalom was killed in that battle. And one of the men come running back to David to say, We won the battle. We won the day. Israel saved. And he runs into the king's chamber. And, and he says, Your majesty, we won. We whipped them. Israel is safe. David says, I don't care about that. What about my boy? He says, I'm sorry, sir. He's dead. All oh, the agony. The pain that went in his life. Oh, the fact that, that he goes through those things. His friends conspire against him. Israel conspires against him. And if that wasn't enough, Ammon takes Tamar, his daughter, and has incest with her within the family. What a train wreck of a family. And David is enraged. Ah, here it comes. Here it comes. Here's the chickens coming home to roost. Here's the, here's the law of compounding effect. Here's where a rubber meets the road. David is enraged. He's, in, he's insane with anger. And he wants to... The, what, what, what Amon did to Tamar is, is punishable under the law by death. And he says to himself, I'm going to kill that boy. And then God's Spirit says, Are you? Well, the two things you did deserve death too. Now, in psychology, ladies and gentlemen, this is called, listen to me, learned behavior. His children learned what they did based on what his bad choices were. And you better learn it. You better realize it. You better understand it. 
It's tough dealing with your own kids when they look at you and know that you're a phony too. It's tough dealing with them on some issue in their life when they know you're doing the same exact thing. It's tough to tell your boy, don't you be smoking marijuana when he got it out of your stash. It's tough to say, what are you doing drinking beer when he got it out of your refrigerator? It's tough to say, don't you ever let me catch you smoking when he stole them out of your purse. I had a kid one time years and years ago. I think I told you this story a while back. I think it was in child training. Guy that was a hopeless alcoholic. I said to him, I said, you know what? I said, he said, and everybody looked at the end result. And I, I was searching in my own heart, my own mind. I try to help people with severe problems. And I said, let me ask you something. I said, how long have you been an alcoholic? You know what he said to me? He said, Bob, he said, forever. He said, you know where I learned to drink? He said, every night my dad used to sit down and watch the fight. So this was a long time ago. And he said he'd sit down there in his easy chair after a long, hard day of work, and he'd have three or four bottles of beer. And he said we'd all go to bed, and he said after everybody went to bed, I'd sneak back down, and I'd drain the suds out of my dad's beer bottle at six years old. He attributed his alcoholism all the way back to that. And as far as I know, that guy died and went to hell. And you know who put him there? You know who was the tool to get him there? I will give you a guess, and the first two don't count. Satan is standing up against your house just like he stood up against Israel. It wasn't just David. It wasn't just David at all. Oh, you may get back. Let me tell you something. You're better off never to leave in the first place. The less bad decisions you make in life, the better off you are. And if you've made some bad decisions in life, it doesn't mean you can't fix them. It means you've got to stop short-term making any more bad ones. Cut the compounding effect. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot impress upon you. And you know what? And I know some of you think, you know, who am I, who am I, and this and all that. And I don't like what he's saying. But let me tell you something. Uh, just put that all aside. I can't impress upon you enough the, the, the absolute importance of making good, clear, biblical decisions in your life and in your family and with your kids. I'm telling you, life is going to be tough enough on you. And you're going to have enough, enough issues you've got to deal with without you being the catalyst that brings these things about. If the devil was just after you, it would be one thing. But he's after your house. He's after your family. He's after your kids. He's after your wife. He's after your marriage. And very frankly, some of you will go to heaven and your kids are going to die and split hell wide open. You got a free ticket. You got saved. It's always what I tell you. I tell you, whatever you are, your kids will be less than what you are. And maybe you're a social drinker. You know what that means? They'll wind up probably being alcoholics. Maybe you just do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They'll wind up being addicted to it. The, the, the law of compounding effect goes downhill. They look at our flippant attitude about what we do, how, 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 how frivolous it looks like. We just, we just we say, oh, I can do this. I'm a Christian. I, I, I don't believe what all Bob says. And I got, yeah, way the price tag comes in. Wait till you got to stand at the great white throne judgment and point that finger at that boy or that girl and cast him in the lake of fire. And you get a free ticket. Now, you can get mad at that all you want. I don't care. It's a reality. It's a reality. God forbid that some of you will lose your family. It happens all the time. I've seen it all through my life. The wife will get tired of your stupidity. She'll get tired of your bullheadedness. She'll get tired of you not doing what's right. 
The devil will do exactly what he did with Israel. He divided them and the Rehoboam. He divided the kingdom, the house of Israel, and then he defeated both halves. He'll divide your family over a bad decision or some stupidity, and he'll defeat both halves. Devil's got you in his crosshairs. And we as God's people are too stupid to see it till it's too late. And I'm afraid that some of God's people, not just talking to you, I see it all the time. I deal with it all the time. I deal with a lot of people that have nothing to do with here. People, pastors send me people all the time. And it's going to take a tragedy. I'm going to tell you something. You can say whatever you want to say and think this is playing to your emotions or whatever you want to do. I don't care at this point. The last couple of weeks I've made my intention very clear. But if God can't get your affection set on things above one way, I'll tell you what. He may just come down, pick a little flower out of this garden down here and plant it up here and make it real to you. If you think that ain't going to happen and doesn't happen, my father and Lord, my father and Lord, Mel Sabaka. Most of you don't know him, many of you do. One of the greatest men that I ever met in my life, the Apostle Paul of my life. The man that taught me everything I know about the ministry. I mean, he never quits, never stops. When he was in Canton, Ohio, and I was in his, his, his church there and helped him as part of his ministry there, working with him at 56 years old. I'm 58. Two years before I uh, hear, 56 years old, he had a nice job. He, had, he, was, he would get, preach any place in the country. He was nationally known. He had a, one of the greatest ministries anywhere in the world. He had everything he could want. But God gave him a burden for New York City. And at 56 years old, he cast everything aside, left everything, went to New York City where he didn't know a soul and built a church. Seven years later, he's running six, 700 people in that church. Incredible. Up into his 70s and his 80s, still preaching. Got prostate cancer two years ago. Dropped up, you know, 60 pounds. Looked like a skeleton. Hardly can walk. Still has Bible conferences where he can. He moved down to Florida in a retirement home. Thought he'd get away from it. The guy comes up and runs a retirement home and says, Hey, look, are you, is your name Mel Sabaka? Yes, it is. Well, you know what? We got a bunch of people in here that can't go to church. We got a chapel. We got no preacher. So he started another church at 80-some years old, a little chapel down there. He always wanted to die with his boots on. He will. He will. He will. I remember him saying that a thousand times. I hope I die with my boots on. I used to, I used to get me say, I hope when I'm preaching that somebody just blows my brains out and I die in the pulpit. I don't know if he's going to blow his brains out, but he's going to die in the pulpit. He's going to die. God's going to call him home and he'll have his boots on. See, that's the other side. I know him like nobody else knows him. I spent so much personal time with him when my dad died and all of the things that I went through and, and I, me and him, God knitted our hearts together and, and he taught me everything I know. But I know, the, I know the other side of him. I used to go with him when he traveled and I'd work all day long and we'd jump in a car because he had a revival down in Bridgeport, Ohio which was 120 miles away. We'd head out at 4, four o'clock and drive down there to get there by 7 o'clock and he'd preach. I'd play the trumpet and lead the singing and do the song, man. We'd jump in the car and come back. I don't know how many times, how many times, how many times, how many times I heard him say in the pulpit. Never said it much when he preached at home. But he told the story. Didn't want to put it on his wife, I guess. But he told the story how when he was a 32-year-old man, he had life made. He had life made. He had a setup where the fact that he, he had everything he wanted. He worked for the detention center in Kansas City. had everything that he needed, everything that he wanted. Good job, good this. And God called him to preach. God called him to preach. And God called him to preach and he wouldn't, he wouldn't give it in. He wasn't. 
He was getting his going to Kent State University. Saved man going to Kent State University, working on his philosophy degree in criminal justice. He wanted to, he was a superintendent of a detention home. He wanted to move up the system, and God put the bug in him and hired him to preach. Wouldn't, wouldn't, he, he argued with God, fought with God. He tells the story after that baby was died, a little girl, God reached down in his garden and pulled that little flower out. You know what he tells? And I, this is his story, not mine. You know what he says? You know what I heard him say? You know what he told me? He says, you know what, Bob? He says, don't ever get your heart so hard that God just can't squeeze it with his hands and make tears come to your eyes. He said, my heart was hardened. I didn't want to preach. I didn't want anything to do with the ministry. I had a good job. And you know what? Heaven wasn't real to me. Heaven just wasn't a real thing to me. And you know what God did? He said, God reached down in my garden here and plucked a little flower out and planted up in his garden and suddenly heaven became real. I've heard him tell the story more than one time. I've heard, him, I, I've heard him tell it when nobody else heard it. I've heard him tell the story that after that all went down, how him and God worked it out. And obviously, he was mad at God at first, but he realized that God was right and God was good. And when he went to that little funeral, and they were standing around that little white casket about that big, the funeral director come over and he said, you folks can go now and we'll, we'll put the casket down. And Sabaka said, get out of my way. Ain't nobody putting that little casket in the ground but me. And he told the story how he picked that little white casket up on a cold February day and laid down along that little hole and laid that little thing down there and he put the dirt over it. He said to God, I'll preach. I'll preach. I'll preach. He said, I got up that day and he said, I, I said, he said I, I, at that point in my life, he said, I settled it. He said, now heaven was real. I had something in heaven now that was real to me. Heaven wasn't just an abstract concept anymore. Now it was real, and I had something there. And he preached the rest of his life like he believed it. But, oh, I saw the pain. We'd go down, and we'd preach in Zanesville, Ohio, someplace, and we'd preach down on one of those little river towns, Bridgeport. We did a lot of little river towns. Boy, they were rough. We were rough. That's where we went into the truck stop down there, and me and two other guys, and we're down there getting a little bite to eat before we go to the church. Big, all these big old, I don't know what they did. They looked like King Kong, man. They were all monster guys in this little, you know, redneck truck stop. So we get our food, you know, and we bow our heads to pray. One of the guys over there, and he says, uh, he says all, the, all, the, all the people, all the people where you come from do that. Old Sabaka looked at him and said, no, nah, son, the hogs don't. I thought, hey, we're going to get killed. I've seen him to the place where we're sitting down there and over there along the thing there, two guys were goddamn this and Jesus Christ and this and, 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 and this, everything in the world. And uh, we'd be down there eating and Mel would say, here, you catch, the, you catch, here's the money, you pay for the tab. And I watched him. I watched him. I watched him walk over to those two guys and he'd say, hey, excuse me, sir, I, I'm just kind of passing through town here when we preach down here at church, but I, I heard you talking about a friend of mine. The old guy looked up and said, well, I, who, well, I don't know you, who's friend? And he says, yeah, you were talking about my friend Jesus. He says, I want you to know he's not who you think he is. He's not the person that you were talking about over here. He loves you. And I want to, if you would allow me, I want you to, I want you to take this little track that tells you how you could, that, that, that same one that you were talking about in such a derogatory way can be your own personal savior. Two guys just looking at him. He lived the rest of his life like heaven was real. You know what the problem is with us today, most of us, me included? 
Heaven's really not real. Oh, we come to church, but it isn't real. We don't live our lives. We're, we're Jehovah Witnesses Christians. We really don't believe there's a place called hell. We talk about it in the abstract. We don't really believe that our kids might go there. We'll even believe that, that people that we work with are going to go there. Oh, I watched him. I heard him tell that story about putting that little white casket down that ground and we'd be having a revival that night and I'd be doing the invitation and a little, maybe a 20-year-old, 19-year-old girl would come on down and get saved. Sweetheart, a little gal, blonde hair. About 20 years old, you know, crying, getting saved. One of the ladies pick her back in the back. We'd have a whole bunch of people saved and we'd be driving home that night. Two o'clock in the morning, you know, they always want a fellowship afterwards. Quiet. He'd look over to me and he'd say, She'd be about that old right now. I said, who are you talking about? He says, my little girl. I said, you know that little gal that came forward and got saved tonight? And I said, yeah, the little strawberry blonde. Yeah, he said, she had strawberry hair and a little blonde curls. He said, she'd be about 20 years old right now. See, never forgot it. Never forgot it. I'll tell you something. There's a price tag to our bad choices and decisions. The rule is, don't make any more of them than you have to. Learn from David. We're going to study him as the shepherd boy. We're going to study him as the king. We're going to study him as God's man. But just like every other man in the Bible, and just like your life and my life, it's not the things that we do that are a disaster. It's decisions that we make long before those disasters ever manifest themselves. It's basically getting out of the battle. Thinking that, we can serve, that when push comes to shove and times get tough, we can let God on the sidelines. Oh, not completely. But we can take anything out of our lives to get it out of what we're doing so we can fix our problem. And then the devil just puts the crosshairs on it and it's one problem after another. Every head bowed and every eye closed.